Hello, and welcome to Percolating on Faith, a Project Zion podcast series where beloved Community of Christ theologians, Tony and Charmaine Shavala-Smith, take us by the hand and guide us through the ins and outs of all the questions and doubts. Thinking about God and growing in faith is a journey that never ends. I'm your host, Robin Linkhart, and our topic today is the Christian Institution of Marriage. Welcome, Tony and Charmaine. Oh, hi, Robin. Good to be here. Yes, it's lovely to be with you and don't know about taking people by the hand, but we'll do our best. We'll try not to mislead anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the topic that we are exploring today is indeed deep and wide and in current times is not without controversy. We will need to touch on several aspects of the whole, things like scripture and history, culture, laws of the land, covenant, and relationship ethics of mutuality and equality. But as we always say on this wild adventure, context, context, context. And of course, in a diverse global community like Community of Christ, it gets even more complicated. But I just have to say that I have complete faith in our trusty guides to help us navigate the marriage topic and leave us with lots to think about. So Tony and Charmaine, take it away. (laughs) Well, that was a long list of things to explore uh, concerning marriage, and hopefully we'll get to, to all of them. But yes, it's a very complex subject, partly because in at least in western culture there's we seldom ask where did this come from where did marriage and our view of it come from and there's often a mistaken idea that somehow it emerged out of christianity and and of course it did not uh christianity kind of took in this structural aspect of roman culture in the first century and uh, let it be the guide the and then and then Christianized it. But, you know, we want to, to kind of explore different different aspects of what marriage was, mm-hmm. for instance, in the first century and second century that we can, those glimpses that we might be able to get from the New Testament. And then to look at the progression of the development of Christianity and where did marriage fit in the midst of that development or marriages, where did the idea of marriage uh, different, it's different forms or the elements that make it up. Where did they go? How did that, how did that develop? So w- what we're calling marriage uh, predated Christianity, predated Judaism, predated the patriarchal period in the Hebrew Bible, you know, way pre-Judaism. In fact, some scholars say it's, it goes way back in evolutionary history to what's called pair bonding. So, uh, you know, uh, pair bonding emerged in our human evolutionary history, because because uh, because human children take a long time to nurture and develop and be prepared for adulthood, that was true in ancient evolutionary history. Apparently, still true today. <laughs> so there needs to be a structure right. for for children to grow and develop in. So in the religion of ancient <laughs> Israel, and subsequently in Judaism, and then subsequently in Christianity marriage customs already existed culturally. And so what happened was these religious traditions uh, took existing customs and then tried to 
to modify them and reread them through their own particular uh, spiritual theological lenses. So that's where the, the question of context is super important. So uh, I think we have to say that that there's not like the biblical view of marriage <laughs> and there's not the Christian view of marriage. There's multiple views. And that's because like, for example, scripture doesn't like give a complete uh, finalized theology of marriage. And, well, and so, if it did, there would still be several yeah, <laughs> because right, there right. would be some Old Testament mm -hmm. images of marriage that included uh, polygamy, multiple um, wives, typically, and and then other sexual partners, concubines, others like that. And so so those who those who are literalists and looking to the Bible to tell you about marriage, it's probably not it's probably not a good place to go because what's being represented there is actually the cultures in which first Judaism and then Christianity emerge. So Christianity then from the start has always had to kind of uh, construct a theology of marriage. Marriage is a pre-existing institution. And so in a Christian context, what what will what will we take over from the culture and how will we interpret it and how will we run it through the the Jesus lens right so that's always been a, a thing that Christianity's had to do and it has done that in quite varied ways through the centuries but you know if if we're going to talk about uh, a a Christian or a community of Christ theology of marriage we have to realize that a theology is a construct and that it always uses the four voices, scripture, experience, tradition, and reason, you know, critical rationality. It uses all these to help construct its best, its best current sense of the nature of marriage and how, how the values connected to Jesus might best be lived out in that particular uh, social personal arrangement. So, so uh, and, and also it's really important to note there that in, in different parts of the world, different cultural contexts where the church is present. where our church is present of those four voices. There's different folk, you know, like, like focus on one voice over others. For example, in some African contexts, the, the focus will be on the scripture voice. Whereas in some North American contexts, the focus would be on the experience voice, but you know, a, a more carefully thought out theology of marriage has to make use of all the voices as it tries to uh, understand what marriage is and can be through through a Christian lens. So we'll we'll do a little of that as we go today, but we wanted to get all that out on the table first. So 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 yeah. what can we figure out from scripture? And again, what we're doing is we're kind of peeking into the past and saying what what are the patterns that were common in the cultures in which first Judaism and then Christianity develops. And, you know, I've already said that in the Old Testament, there is, um, there are multi polygamy, multiple wives. It, the more, more powerful and, and richer you are, the more, <laughs> you, more you are likely to have. And so, David Solomon, yeah. right. <laughs> and in these situations, women tended to be seen as property with few rights, uh, some that emerge in Judaism over time. So, you know, we're going to have to do some some big picture view th things here and say that, you know, Christianity has an inheritance both from the Jewish tradition and from the Roman cultural world, right? Both of those cultures come into uh, come into play as Christianity is trying to figure itself out. 
Um, we could say that the trend in the Hebrew Bible is towards monogamy, right? So by the time you get to the Hebrew prophets, the Amoses and Hoseas and Isaiahs, one way you can tell that the trend has been moving towards monogamy is those prophets use marriage as an analogy for the relationship between Israel and God. And so, and they're quite yeah. critical <laughs> if, <laughs> if Israel is, has any relationship outside of the one with God in yeah. worshiping other gods. And so that that's showing that this one commitment, this marriage of one to one is, is becoming normative. The, mm -hmm. the prophets are assuming that people would say, well, of course, one should have this uh, committed relationship to one other person. And so that's that's one of the places we can see that this is emerging as the, the more dominant way of understanding marriage. Thus, for example, you know, in, in Hosea and Isaiah and so on, adultery becomes the metaphor for Israel's faithlessness to Yahweh. And so going, we, going after other gods, right, right, right. You can't, you can't worship Yahweh and then date, date other women, so to speak, <laughs> or, or, or other gods, you know? yeah, Baal or, <laughs> right. So, um, that behind that then is a social reality that Israelite and, and then Judean culture have moved towards monogamy. And that continues in Judaism, you know, down to the time of Jesus. It doesn't, doesn't mean that there weren't some polygamous people. It just means that the trend was in the direction of monogamy. And, and you can see that there's still uh, the either the memory or maybe existing vestiges of polygamy in Jesus' time when some of the, the Pharisees and scribes throw the question at him, well, what about a woman who marries one man and he dies and she marries the brother? And which is these, this would be uh, Leverite marriages that were quite common in at least the Jewish past, it, they might still be happening during Jesus' time, but everyone's familiar with that part of their tradition. And so even in that time, there, there's a familiarity with some other configurations of, of marriage, but but it's, it's not at all clear that that's still practiced widely, but it's part of their understanding of their long story, of the Jewish long story. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's just a reference point. So, you know, there's, it's possible there's still polygamous relationships going on during that time, but it's not, it doesn't appear at all to be normative within Judaism yeah. in the first century. And even in first century Judaism at the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's celibacy being practiced, which is rather unusual in, in Jewish history too. And so we, I mean, it's, I think it's fair to say in terms of the New Testament, monogamy is generally the underlying principle of marriage. It's certainly, that's certainly clear in Jesus's teachings about marriage and divorce and it's it's clear in in Paul's comment on marriage in First Corinthians, and then in the, the 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 later Pauline tradition, Colossians and Ephesians, it's it's assumed monogamy is assumed. There's there's a text in First Timothy, which is the latest Pauline tradition, you know, a couple of generations after Paul, which which says the the bishop should be husband of only one wife, or can it be translated bishop should be married only once? It it can be translated either way. But if if it were a husband of only one wife, it would imply that there were still some polygamous relationships around. But generally, it's quite accurate to say that the New Testament presupposes monogamy as the kind of marital standard, which would be common in the Roman world. Right. And that's what I want to emphasize is that it 
it's the structure of the Roman world that is determining that mon <laughs> that a monogamy is the primary form of marriage. Uh, and, you know, there's really, there's very little evidence that early Christianity tried to subvert or change the understanding of marriage that was was the primary one in its culture. It worked with it. It worked with the reality of the structures that were around it, just like it did with the, the economic structures and even the governmental structures that Christianity figured out how to how to move and grow in the midst of all of this. So within Christianity, there isn't a, a sense that these uh, conventions of the day are tossed out. They are over time given different kinds of meaning. And I think that's what you'll see developing over time. Yeah, there's a, there's what's what's happening is that in the Roman world, you know, as Christianity is moving along, uh, they've inherited these Roman marriage, Greco-Roman marriage assumptions and customs. But there is an attempt to kind of run them through the the Christological filter, the Jesus filter. You can see that in Colossians and Ephesians. You know, so in Colossians three, there's this statement. Wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. By the way, that any any pagan Greco-Roman moral philosopher was saying that stuff. That's there's nothing unusual about that. Then it goes on, husbands love your wives and never treat them harshly. Well, there were some philosophers who were saying that. But see, here's the problem. You've got to read that verse in light of everything that came before it in chapter three of Colossians. And then and then what you see, then what you see is that. Those statements, which are kind of common, run-of-the-mill statements, any moral and teacher would have pulled given. out, and and in our time get oh, pulled yeah. out and used against yeah. women, which is a real misuse of the text because the the literary context there is where you see the author of Colossians saying, first of all, in the Christian community, mutual love and kindness is is the basic, the first it's, rule. It's the first rule, and so so I might I might just gently disagree with Charmaine's use of language a minute ago and say that? say that uh, there is a little bit of subversion there. There is subversion. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. Right. So in other words. But uh, it's still relying on the structure. Yeah, it, it relies on the structure, but then tries to That's Christologize it a little bit. In other words, run it through the Jesus mill, which changes it. So any yanking of that one text, you know, out of context using a wedding is horrible because it, it misses what's the crafty thing that's going on there where the author of Galatians is saying, hey, in Christian community, mutual love and affection and support, that's the rule. All right, yeah, wives be submissive if your husbands, husbands love your wives. Like everybody, you know, the culture says that, but remember the basic rule here. <laughs> so then if Ephesians goes quite a bit farther. Um, Ephesians actually on Colossians, uh, the author of Ephesians had a copy of Colossians in front of him, but Ephesians 5, uh, there's 21 says, be subject to one another, right? So there's mutual submission in the community uh, out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives be sub subject to your husbands and husbands, the head of the wife and so on. Again, you got to read the whole section it's in and understand that the author is repeating conventional wisdom, but then really, really, really hyper filtering it through the story of Jesus. Preceding it mm -hmm. by the story of Jesus and and what's expected within the community, and then and then saying what the culture expects. So, no, no Greco-Roman philosopher that I can think of would have said <laughs> you have to practice mutual submission, right? <laughs> and uh, so, in other words, the the equality that's in Christ 
that Paul, a generation or two earlier, articulated in Galatians, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. That kind of equality is still a norm in the Christian church, but the Christian church, Christian churches are now having to kind of adjust to a long, a long stay in the Roman world. And so they, you know, they repeat some of the common Roman wisdom, but then they, they still, they still are trying to maintain that radical equality in the household that, that Paul first glimpsed and that was part of Jesus ministry. The Paul talks about a couple of different times, but in Galatians, the, the whole idea that in Christ, there is neither, you know, uh, Jew or Greek or male and female or slave and free and so there's that um that's still the premise yeah so what the, the roman some, some things that that are important to know about the roman world at this time is that back during the time of the emperor augustus there's a bunch of marriage rules laws passed and so roman marriage customs from those laws required mutual consent from both parties. In other words, there wasn't a father arranging, necessarily arranging a marriage for for uh, his daughter. That, I mean, it's not that that thing still didn't go on in, in the wider Hellenistic world. It's that by Roman law, you had to have consent the two, between- The two parties mm-hmm. had to, to consent. And in Roman law, either either party could initiate a divorce. So you see some of that in the New Testament, Right. Paul in in 1 Corinthians 7 imagines that either party could initiate a divorce. Uh, it's imagined in Mark, not in Matthew, I think, mm-hmm. if I remember right. And one is re- Matthew and Mark. One is relying more on Jewish tradition. The other is relying more on Roman tradition as far as dissolving a marriage. And that's often where you get the clearest images of what marriage, the legal aspects of marriage is what is required in order to for divorce to happen. And and some of the issues behind that had to do with property rights. What property did the woman bring into the marriage? Does it go back to her family? Does it become the husband's property? And what what will the offspring inherit? Yeah. Um, and keeping that within either the maternal or the paternal families legacy. I think it's <laughs> a state. I think, I think it's interesting that that Marriage almost always has had some kind of economic dimension to it, mm. uh, which would be interesting to explore. I had a professor once who knew a, a scholar in France who's who's a scholar of medieval history and religion, and that scholar's whole academic specialty was uh, medieval marriage contracts, <laughs> which sound, which sounds like absolutely zero fun to me, <laughs> but with that that scholar's. Uh, long patient analysis of medieval marriage contracts that they they were almost universally about economic stuff right right and, and that gave a huge a lens to the actual day-to-day living of people and and the decisions and structures that that shaped their lives yeah so uh what one thing we can say then generally in the new, in the new testament which is a library of literature it's varied but you can see you can see New Testament authors in different ways. And here's our language, trying to, to reroute the culture's patriarchal assumptions about marriage, trying to reroute it mm-hmm. through the Jesus narrative. And by when, in doing that, even when they keep some patriarchal assumptions, like wives be subject to your husband, they, they add things that create a dimension of equality and justice that wouldn't have otherwise been there. So that we'd say that's the trend in the New Testament, and it's a trend that Community of Christ 
today wants to pay careful attention to. We, we, we don't want to overlay marriage with ancient or even modern patriarchal assumptions. <laughs> the the, the yeah. equality and justice aspect uh, for, for the partners is just really, really vital for it to, in other words, we, we want to reroute our own, our own culture's marriage assumptions through that lens too. So I think that's pretty important. So where else can we go? Well, go maybe ahead, a little bit about uh, Christianity in the Roman Empire. And, you know, for those who are aware of the, the history of those first few centuries of Christian development, Christianity at first is a, uh, a religion under suspicion <laughs> and is its intent to overthrow the government. Do we need to squash it, you know, and and wait, making martyrs doesn't seem to be squashing it. It seems to be growing. And going from that to Christianity being accepted as a legitimate religion within the culture to eventually being the official religion of the culture. So what happens to marriage in this process? And what we're seeing in those first three or four centuries is still that marriage is mainly being defined by the state, by the government. Some parts of the marriage, um, well, there's marriage becomes more of a ritual. First, in some places, the priest might go and do a blessing on the, the marriage, but then leave before the, the raucous partying <laughs> and, the, and the questionable plays that would be put on about sex and romance that were happening as part of, of Roman uh, weddings. And, but eventually uh, the, the clerics have more say in, in what's happening in the solemnizing of marriage or these, these consents. Um, I would have been defrocked. I wanted to stay for the, to watch the plays. And <laughs> so so uh, there in some places, I think this is mostly in the East, the bride and groom would have little crowns and the blessing of the crowns became kind of the first step for the church, having some part to play in the, in the marriage process. Eventually there's this, the, there are these other parts that are blessings or a, conferring by the church that this is a, a kind of a, a recognized union but then but it takes two or three hundred years actually before the church has a fully developed ritual in which the state definition of of, of marriage is confirmed and affirmed within a, a religious setting and, and we should add there too that that in the western western church in the latin-speaking western church Marriage is not really officially identified as a sacrament till the 800s. And then from the 800s to the 1300s, that it, it increasingly is considered part of the seven sacraments and then officially officially named one of the seven sacraments in the 1500s during the Catholic Reformation. But but uh, it, its its road to being a sacrament was laid early. It just took a long time for it to be declared that. But, but you know... The the church it's inter interesting the ancient church especially as it became, becomes the imperial church has this sort of ambiguous relationship with with marriage it's it, the Roman customs are still there and preserved what should the church's role be in that right. right and so some of the little steps along the way were the the church saying well the bishop should should affirm this this marriage between the two or the the, the bishop should be asked. 
before this marriage happens. Uh, and then slowly it's brought into the building, you know, <laughs> but, it, but initially this would not have been done in church buildings, which weren't really common until about the third century anyway, but yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of slowly, you know, brought to the, the church door and then, oh, well, we have, we have a bit of a liturgy for this and then you can go party and do those other things elsewhere. But it's, it's just a very slow process, which indicates that to some extent, Christian structures were not antagonistic towards the Greco-Roman um, understanding of marriage that had been passed on to it. Uh, it's not changing it a great deal. It's just, just there's kind interacting of a, with yeah. more and more parts of it. There and is like, this increasing ambivalence of, of the church about the sex part of it, right? Because because <laughs> as we as we move further and further into the you know uh, fourth, fifth, sixth, and later centuries celibacy is often treated as the the high the the that's the high bar right and marriage is kind of a low bar well and, if you have to <laughs> so if you must there, okay. there's there's you some of those have sex and have children yeah there's some of those in in the the late ancient church uh, rules emerged about well asking the bride and groom not to have sex for us for some days after the wedding because of the nuptial blessing that was getting I mean, it's like a variety a variety of things and these are and these are partly connected to christianity's inter interlinking with hellenistic culture agree separation of the body right. and the spirit right. and that, that the body stuff is ew <laughs> and the spirit stuff is like oh that's where we unite with with the universe and so that kind of dualism which generally Christian theology opposed it, but it did sort of some, seep in. Some periods yeah. that that was uh, a default. So we can, I mean, we should say that through this period, monogamy is definitely, definitely the the standard. And At least in the Western Church. In the Western Church, yeah. And that second and third marriages were looked looked down upon with 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 increasing looking down upon this, <laughs> right. right? In other words. It was like a set. If your if your spouse died, a second marriage is like, okay, that's it's it's better than fornication. <laughs> but if the second spouse died, a third marriage is like, oh geez, I don't know. <laughs> it's just so, dressed up fornication. Yeah, I, there are some of the the, the really uptight theologians yeah. in the what fourth and fifth century, yeah, and later. And so, in other words, the the the, the Western churches kind of s struggle. It's ambivalence and struggle with human sexuality based on coming out of Roman culture. Um, it, it lingers in the church for a long time. And so, yeah. And is well, even. I just want to ask a quick question because yeah. that, that shift, and I think I was hearing it a little bit before too, in some of the New Testament passages of looking down on subsequent marriages after a death of a spouse. Mm -hmm is very interesting because because that kind of is a sense of looking at life in a here and later perhaps way but what would that be tied to because i think part of controlling women and the whole uh, esteem of virginity was already there before uh jesus birth so it's controlling the DNA pool. Of course, they wouldn't call it DNA pool, then, but, <laughs> but it seems like there's a familial 
kind of piece that might be playing a part in that, but I don't know that for sure on the valuing the first marriage and not really getting married again after that. It, yeah. it would make, it would certainly make those aspects complicated. Um, you know, if you have two households, you know, if the woman is still tied to her father's estate in effect, and uh, mm-hmm. a second wife is what I'm thinking of. You know, the first wife has died or perhaps there's been divorce. And then, <clears throat> so that might complicate the inheritance of the children from the first or from the second mm-hmm. union. So there would be some of that, mm-hmm. but part of it is also perhaps going back to that passage in First Timothy about the uh, bishop only being married once i think the question would be more like well you've already had that sexual part of your life explored you really don't need to go there again if you're (laughs) you know if you're really devoted at least that's the sense that i get is that there's almost a it's considered a weakness Mm -hmm. to need to be married again and maybe even a third time if your wife dies and i think that's another little piece here that most of us don't have a good sense of how often maternal death happened right. um, in in the past, even within, mm-hmm. well, and it's growing again now, but in the, especially before years ago. And, and so remarriage was not uncommon, but there is a very much the sense of not being so tied to the bodily mm-hmm. lust or needs. Uh, so that's developing already in this fourth fifth century and then it, and then it develops even more later yeah <clears throat> and by and by the fourth fifth century we now have a new testament canon mm-hmm. right and so jesus in the gospels is yes. single mm-hmm. paul the, the historical paul is single and this isn't these are now canonical texts and paul in first corinthians 7 he's not against marriage he just says basically i wish you i wish you guys were like me single because uh, Jesus is coming any day. He's coming any day. And, and we don't want to complicate and, things. Right, right. <laughs> Your life would be way easier if you were like me. And we said, but but marriage isn't bad. And so if you if you need to get married, yeah, go ahead. If you're um, on fire. Yes, if you're, if you're on fire, go ahead, get married. Um, so in other words, Paul in you know, an, an original context is lost by this time. And you know, Paul's Paul's functioning inside of his own framework in which the the end of the age is about to happen so you know whatever state you're in is probably best to stay in that state but if you have to go ahead and so by the time you get to the fourth fifth century and that's now canon people are saying well paul's the ideal and jesus is the ideal therefore celibacy must be the ideal and and if you have to you can do a less than which is marriage but uh and and by the way in the late roman empire a lot of women in christianity chose the chose the higher bar it was Probably. virginity gonna, and yeah. de- devotion to the church or to christ it, in some ways it was probably a better bar oh. given given what you're marriage gonna, was going to be for you're gonna live a lot longer and you're gonna get an ed- education right. <laughs> so, you're gonna hang out with mm-hmm. women you're gonna learn you're gonna read and and yeah so it was a a, a better life in many ways but so but i that, think yeah and then, and all the authors will say this that you know in, in the scholarly material is yes there were a few who could do this, uh, the celibacy piece, but most of the population wasn't. They were forming families. They were getting married. They were doing all of these things. 
So a, a large portion of Christians were um, were using the practices of marriage and the institution of, of family. In the in the late fourth century, into the fifth century, there was an argument in the church about whether marriage was good at all. And some of the extremists, like Saint Jerome, were like, "Oh, it's horrible." It's just, yeah. These are all guys who aren't married. Okay, right, first right, of all. Right. But it's very interesting that St. Augustine, North African bishop and theologian, who had had a 12 or 13 year relationship with the woman, um, he writes a a treatise called The Good of Marriage, in which he argues that uh, some of these other guys were arguing, oh, uh, sex and procreation, that was a a result of the fall, right? Before the the fall of Adam and Eve, nobody had sex. Nobody was going to, right? After the fall, right? Then sex was necessary to have children. So yeah, it's a bad thing. But Augustine, who had had a sexual relationship with a woman for 13 years said, no, he says, I think that there would, sexuality is part of the good creation and it would have been something Adam and Eve had done anyway. Um, he says the good of marriage, he has a, there's three things that make up the good of marriage. The first thing he calls fidelitas, right? Marriage is a place in which faithfulness gets to be practiced. And then second thing, procreation. This is the the basis for having children. And by the way, Augustine did have a son through that woman. And then the third good of marriage, he uses the word sacramentum, sacrament. And that old Latin word had to do with an oath, a permanent bond between, you know, a, a soldier took a sacramentum for the empire. There was a permanent bonding with the empire. Well, that term gets taken over into Christianity and becomes the term sacraments. If there's a there's there's a, a permanent bonding that takes place in marriage that is that is good in itself. So so even in a culture, in, even in a context where celibacy is seen seen as like the like the like the marathon that everybody should try to win, right? <laughs> Augustine is saying, no, a, a, a virgin a virgin with bad thoughts is not somehow morally better than a non-virgin who seeks justice, right? So he he tries to moderate that a little bit. But, you know, going into the Middle Ages, then in the medieval period, marriage becomes a sacrament and uh, marriage is still by and large, they're still by and large are arrangements. It's not until the late Middle Ages where romantic love becomes a sort of ideal that the upper classes can can pursue. Then you get to the Reformation and the reformers are like, Where's the celibacy thing coming from? Peter was married. All the first disciples were married. So, so they they push back on the celibacy of clergy thing. Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk turned reformer, takes a wife, and uh, John Calvin is married, and so on. So, so Protestantism, as it emerges in the 1500s, uh, has a a pro marriage thing for clergy. And now we're going to jump ahead then to the American context, right? Actually, there. one piece I'd like you to add in. Oh, yeah, sure. A sacrament as a form of grace. Oh, yeah. Say a bit about that. Yeah. You. So like uh, Thomas Aquinas, 13th century, and then you know, subsequent theologians, the, the sacraments, these uh, sacred rites that were in some way commanded by Christ, they come to be under, understood as a vehicle for the giving of grace, right? Baptism confers grace. Confirmation confers divine a divine grace or divine power. Grace meaning grace meaning God's God's uh, unmerited goodness in the form of a, a power that enables you to do things, right? So, so marriage as a sacrament then is 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 starting to be seen as a place where you meet with God's 
loving mm-hmm. presence, forgiveness, acceptance. Right. And 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 the, the sacrament itself confers the confers the grace of faithfulness and so on on the couple, which they then through their free will uh, have to have to have to which choose. They'll to need. Right. Which, they, which <laughs> they'll, they'll need. need for the journey ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so in Catholic tradition, and to some extent in Anglican tradition, mm-hmm. uh, the sacraments are still seen as a means of grace, and that and that goes into community Christ theology. We see the sac, we see our eight sacraments as in different ways, gracing people with divine love and power uh, for particular aspects of their journey. Right. So great. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for going there. So we're kind of been going in some ways hitting the historical uh, elements, and we're going to kind of jump ahead, as Tony said, to the American frontier and all of the experimentation that's happening there in those first, that first, yeah, the first 100 and 200 years in, uh, of the, of the U.S. uh, culture uh, and government structure being formed. And this is really an important piece because for our context in (laughs) Community of Christ, because Joseph Smith is surrounded by all of these different kinds of uh, social experiments. And there are groups that would have seen themselves as grounded in Christianity Mm -hmm. that are experimenting with all kinds of things. So you have the Oneidans and the Owenites and, and uh, other utopian groups. And some of them, some of them uh, practice a kind of open marriage in their communities. On the other hand, you have the opposite, like the Shakers who practice celibacy in their communities. And so, but there's all this different marital experimentation going on. Marital as well as raising families. So in some of these, raising of children is a communal activity. It's not separate households of a married couple with their children, but children are in one building where they are cared for by a variety of adults. So it's it's fascinating to because, you know, here's the, it is, uh, you know, an open frontier in lots of ways. There aren't laws in place, at least the further west you go. Uh, and so there's all kinds of uh, the sense that we are no longer under the the burden of long tradition that, uh, and, and forced understandings of morality and uh, social structures that we had in <laughs> Europe or in other yeah. parts of the world. And so here we are, we can, we can start over. We can start fresh. Let's, let's take this scripture and go with it. Let's take this image and see what happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it strikes me as kind of like a senior high camp without any rules, (laughs) which, which seems like a bad idea to me, but, (laughs) but, but it does, you know, there are these, some very, some extended, uh, like the the shakers, but others short-lived uh, experiments in uh, how will we be together? What what do we commit to as we grow in love, as we grow families, as we grow individually and spiritually? Um, and it's just a really fascinating time, but it's also important to know that the conventions of Protestantism or Catholicism are not the overpowering structures of the time. And so people are open to all all kinds of things. They might think some things are kind of weird, but others, you know, they're up for the challenge. And and Joseph is is growing up in this time period yeah. when these are happening. And there's there are polygamous groups 
they're as we said they're also totally celibate groups yeah. so it's all and, over the place and and so a lot of these groups have a kind of restorationist mythology behind them is we want to we want to do what was we want to go back to what was original and right we want to restore the church as it right. first was or restore marriage the way it used to be right mm -hmm. all this kind of language is going on on the american frontier and that's part of joseph's own inner mythology too and so um there's different ways to understand this but one could argue that joseph joseph has joseph pursues what you would call the restorationist fallacy that is, that which is most ancient is most true. Restoring, you know, so it, it's pretty easy then to understand inside of that framework why you'd say, well, prior to Jesus, way back in the, there's there's polygamy in the Hebrew Bible, and so therefore yeah. it must be authorized by God, and it's fine. And if we want to get back to the originalist <laughs> yes. as we can go, then apparently that would be. That would be a great place to go. Yeah. Um, so spiritual marriage and polygamy, these start to emerge 1840-ish on in, in Nauvoo. Though it's really important to remember that you know, our section 111 from the Doctrine and Covenants, which comes from the Kirtland period, and it's 1835, is very, very straightforward on uh, one man, one woman, two, two partners, uh, nobody else. You both mutually agree to be each other's companion, husband and wife, observing the legal rights belonging to this condition that is keeping yourselves wholly for each other and from all others during your lives. So that had come out of difficult experience in Joseph's life in Kirtland. <laughs> but nevertheless, by the time we get to Nauvoo, there is... They've left that behind. And there's this experimentation going on. Um, and uh, there's, there's a variety of dynamics going on here. Uh, but you know, uh, sp uh, spiritual marriage and polygamy become, you know, part of the part of the culture of Nauvoo, part of the underground culture of Nauvoo. And then that sets up the possibility of reaction against it, which happens in 1844, okay. when when uh, a few dissenters who stayed in Nauvoo published a paper called the Nauvoo Expositor. And one of the things they really push back hard on there is spiritual wifery, polygamy, and the abuse of young female uh, single converts coming from England and other places. They push back hard on that. And so so uh, the reorganization coming out of that experience uh, a decade and a half later, um, it, you know, uh, monogamy is going to be a real exceedingly important principle. Then in, it's a principle of dissent and a, and a, a strong principle of of community identity for the reorganization that emerges. Yeah. There are times when we're teaching community of Christ theology, where we talk about uh, Nauvoo Expositor Day is really, in some ways, the identifying day uh, for where community of Christ, eventually RLDS before that, emerges and takes its stand. And so uh, some of our students, when we first mentioned this, when Tony mentioned this in class one day, uh, made up a button that we have that says Nauvoo Expositor, June the 7th, 1844. And then a big one, one wife, one church, one God. And, you know, it's it's talking about the social, the one wife, the ecclesi ecclesial, the one church and uh the theological one God. Uh, so it, in many ways, our LDS church and then community of Christ really has its beginnings as dissenting 
against these things that they would have seen as anomalies and really headed down the wrong road. You'll see in the Nauvoo Expositor the the list of of things they're worried about that Joseph seems to be promoting or behind the scenes doing. And this is for some people in this burgeoning community in Nauvoo and this rapid growth and as well as the conflicts is is eye-opening for many people. And so there begins to be an outward division within the church. But in many ways, in many ways, uh, RLDS community of Christ it, are the inheritors of those dissenters, those people willing to say, whoa, 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 this isn't <laughs> Christian, you know, and their, their roots are much more deeply in mainstream Christianity mm-hmm. with understandings of who God is, yeah. with understanding of what marriage is, with understanding of what the church is supposed to be about. And not, it's not about a man. <laughs> it's about God. It's about Christ. And so, so in many, many ways, we are an outgrowth of those dissenters. Yeah. And so right from the beginning of the reorganization, the RLDS church and then the community of Christ, we are we we took our stand as in opposition to things like polygamy mm-hmm. and eternal marriage, multiple mm-hmm. gods. And spiritual marriage. And spiritual yeah. marriage. Yeah. So it, those those kinds of things, right from our beginning as as a movement, they shaped our identity because the reorganization was a little group (laughs) compared to a big group (laughs) that moved West. Identity was really, really important because they were always being confused with the group that moved West. And so articulating what we did believe in and what we did not believe in, especially was really, really important. And so for our first 150 years, almost, I would say, our preoccupation was in telling people that we were not Mormon, that that was not our theology, that we did. These are the things we don't believe in. Uh, We don't believe in multiple gods. We don't believe in polygamy and and some of the rights associated with those things. So so it's really for people who are coming into the conversation in community of Christ today um, about the form of marriage or different Mm -hmm. possibilities, forms of marriage. I think it's so important to realize that our very identity was built on aligning with mainstream Christianity on these issues Mm -hmm. of marriage, identity of God, and to some extent, the afterlife. And that that has really, really been important to us for a very long time during that 150 years. We we believed as a as a denomination, Joseph couldn't have had anything to do with polygamy. You know, Graham Young was just a bad influence. And, <laughs> and poor Joseph, it was just slightly misled. Which may know? have been true, but still. <laughs> but but the big issue here is that once once as a church, we became open to looking honestly at the historical materials and and hearing the testimonies of people that that weren't part of the restoration. Uh, we were able to say, okay, yeah, probably Joseph was involved in polygamy, and he may have even been one of the initiators of it. 
Um, but the cool thing is, in my mind, um, is that that allow it allowed us to let Joseph be far more human. And it opened the door mm -hmm. for our focus not to be us and our rightness or Joseph's rightness, but to tear down some of the walls about our own self-preoccupation and look to the God who is so evident in our sacraments, mm -hmm. to look to the Christ who walks with us and chooses to help us grow in our in our spirituality, in our community, mm -hmm. in, in affecting the world in, in new and uh, peaceful and wonderful ways. And so rather than weaken us as a denomination, the recognition that Joseph may have been involved in polygamy actually freed us, mm -hmm. freed us to not have to worry about not not letting our history be our theology, mm -hmm. not letting Joseph and, and his purity be what mm -hmm. makes what we're about right or wrong. And that that need, that opportunity to rely on God and to again listen to God in some new ways to what is our what is our call in the world. So so not just at the beginning of our identity, but even in this pivotal moment when we're saying, you know, our 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 way of being against polygamy and those kinds of things that defined our identity that even the recognition that that probably wasn't valid lets us define our identity even more clearly mm -hmm. and that we don't have to prove purity <laughs> in order yeah. to to be useful to god one thing i said is that what what you what you get out of coming out of this what charmaine has narrated here is that monogamy is a what you'd call a deep structure in community of christ identity and thought it that's why you know, decades later, in 1972, you would read in mm -hmm. Doctrine and Covenants section 150 that a monogamy, you know, is the the basic the, the basic principle of Christian married life. Well, that's articulating this deep structure that has been part of our identity ever since you know, 1860, but even before. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that moment in our story because uh, what's happening is in the 60s and 70s. This little tiny church, <laughs> reorganized church of Jesus Christ, is being pulled into other countries in the world, uh, without them, without those being official plans on our part. Uh, really, God is pulling us into other places where we can share the good news of of Christ. We can share the good news that we think is embodied in the church. But we're discovering, oh my goodness, we're going, we're being invited into cultures where that understand everything differently than we do. And so here's the church growing in India and, and the message is connecting and people are having experience of God, of the spirit of uh, tying into this, but, Oh, some of them are polygamists. <laughs> you know, oh no, we've we've based our identity on being against polygamy, and yet God is doing something here, and and so this is really important because we have to understand the context of that moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, we have this really long and rich tradition of being against polygamy, and yet this is also the time in which we are 
being open to our history and honestly looking at Joseph and realizing, oops, you know, he, he maybe wasn't what we thought. And, and for some people, I have to say that some people did distance themselves from the church when they realized that Joseph was involved in polygamy. There was a disillusionment for, for quite a few people. Um, but now there's this open door to say, are we, are we about being against something or is it we will be for something and so you know you think about many church members many generations in the church and our identity being you know defining ourselves against mormons defining defining ourselves as being against polygamy this is a place where god is doing some new things and where i would say grace as is being understood in the church in a new way. And the idea that it is not whether you're monogamous or polygamous to whether or not you can have a relationship with God. And the fact that the church accepted this revelation mm -hmm. in 1972 that says we extend membership to these folks in India who have heard the gospel and are wanting to join it. This is a really, I mean, it's a tricky spot uh, for mm -hmm. lots of people. It's like, what are we doing? Are we giving up on our identity as, of being against polygamy? But for other people saying, it's not about us anymore. It's about what God is doing in the world. And so, you know, there, there are some who would, uh, say that this, who who want to look at this moment in our history, and who have said, "Oh, it's it's just uh, colonialism." It's right? colonialism, it's, and it's yeah, condescending, yeah. and kind of, oh, but yeah. but in the context of that moment, this was a big shift within Community of Christ. I, I, let me give you a quick analogy there. So, Paul in early Christianity makes the case that Gentiles, who are Gentiles, who are culturally and everything Gentiles, don't have to become Jews before they first become Christians. Uh, that's what justification by faith is about. And uh, it doesn't mean that Paul will accept all their Gentile practices because he doesn't, right? But then by analogy, uh, that section uh, 150 is saying the polygamous tribes people in India don't have to stop being polygamous to become Christian. Uh, but we, we, we will hope that, you know, eventually they will find some new ways to have, have marriage relationships. And so that's, you have to understand sec that section in its context and be, you have to be aware of presentism, like our present understanding of stuff overlaid. You can't can't yeah. project that backwards and judge them by what's happening today or right. how we see things, right. but to, to recognize what's happening in that moment, and, which is. Yeah, even we, within 150, which is accepting mm -hmm. baptism, it's reaffirming the the basic right. uh, of marriage as being right. monogamy. The deep, the deep structure is retained as the basic principle, and yet uh, that section says, "But we're going to welcome these polygamous tribes, build in, baptize them, and then subsequently so, we we will we will teach and we'll do what we can." And that's exactly what we've done in other places too, like like Africa. I think, given the trajectory of the of our church from 1844 to 1972, that was an absolutely 
remarkable moment that needs to be understood in its own time and place and appreciated as a, a grace moment in the church's life, I think. So mm-hmm. let me mention Africa then. So there's, you know, polygamy is practiced in different parts of Africa. Recently, it was made legal in Kenya, uh, Bunda Chibwe tells us. So, but we asked Bunda recently, so if polygamous, uh, a polygamous family comes to the church in an African context, what do our field leaders tell them or teach them? And and Bunda says, well, uh, they take pre-baptismal classes. So they learn the church's identity, message, mission, beliefs. And the the polygamous couple here will typically be a husband with two or three wives. They will be baptized and confirmed in the community of Christ. And then field leaders in Africa have them promise to teach their children that monogamy is the foundation of Christian marriage, right? So in other words, it's not, it's we accept and then teach that this is not the way it's going to be going forward, right? And so then the, the, the family has to promise that if one spouse dies, the husband, one of the wives. if one of the wives dies, the, the husband won't, won't get a replacement. <laughs> right. Right. So um, and that uh, and they also understand that they won't be called into priesthood, that that's that 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 while they're not second class citizens in the church, ordination in the church is uh, compatible with monogamy and not polygamy. So that's what they do. That's what they do in Africa uh, to this day. Uh, based on the wisdom of that section of the Doctrine and Covenants and subsequent practice in Africa. So um, uh, the, the basis in Africa for, for saying you, 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 if you're in a polygamous relationship, you can't be ordained, is that, you know, remember the four voices, you know, the African church relies heavily on scripture, especially the New Testament. And so that line from 1 Timothy, uh, a, bishop, a bishop must be the husband of only one wife, Right, depending on or married ones, or married ones, depending on how you translate it, that's the the text by which uh, they they argue. Uh, you know, uh, priest, priesthood is not compatible with with uh, polygamy, but hey, everything else, you're a full member of the church here, so so come on in. That's how they do it there. So, but no, notice how they retain the deep structure of monogamy that's part of community of Christ's historical journey, and then kind of tweak it for the African context a little bit. So, yeah. Good. So that's it's kind of a, a quick run through <laughs> of a lot of a lot of history of marriage <laughs> and not obviously uh, it's not obviously comprehensive, but it's a quick run through. But now let's, we're going to shift gears now to, um, you know, your original question about. So let's talk about a, what what would go into a, a, a what are some signposts for a community of Christ theology of marriage right now? So, I mean, starting point, we identify marriage as a sacrament. And in our theology, a sacrament is a sacred rite that in some way goes back to Jesus. And it has three necessary elements. It has a sign, some kind of symbol. It has word, usually a proclamation or prayer or scripture. And it has a covenant. Those three things make a particular rite a sacrament. And when it comes to marriage and some of the others... Um, that they also are public. Right, yes. Not, not little private ceremonies. So we, we see sacraments as a means of grace too. Uh, means of grace both for the persons, the individuals, and the community. So that's why it, it remains generally pretty important in community Christ that marriage celebrations are public. Well, that doesn't mean you have to have 500 people, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, but... So this, this basic sacramental understanding connects us to Christian traditions that look back to, to texts like Ephesians 
uh, in which there's like a mystical bond between Christ and the church. And that, that somehow in marriage, the, the partners, the partners are uh, drawn into that mystical bond and through their life together, we'll try to reflect that mystical bond, right? Uh, we still use DNC 111. You both mutually agree, which then is again the, the monogamy deep structure text in our in our tradition. I think it's it's really important to say, given the difficulties, I mean, let's just face it, marriage is hard, <laughs> right? It's hard work. And in, in America, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just needed to affirm you on it. <laughs> yes, thank you. Just ask Charmaine how hard marriage is. It's like, dude, she's married to me, for goodness sakes. Right. So in, in American culture, which is highly individualistic, highly focused on feelings and emotions, the the overstress on the romantic idea of love sometimes has made the actual uh, give and take and tough work of marriage kind of difficult extra difficult because it feels like it's wrong somehow or there's something wrong if it's this hard yeah we 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 constantly refer to uh, love as an act of the will not as a feeling not feelings just a feeling. Not, not just a feeling it doesn't you know and so so that that's important in our understanding of Mary Sue that that love is something we choose to do and be not not just a, a reducible to a particular feeling <laughs> I just I've started saying that uh, monogamy and monotheism are equally hard, <laughs> right? It's that can be read in so many different ways, but within can. our culture, there are so many things that vie for being our God, whether that's, that's money or status or security or comfort or how others see us. Um, you know, there's so many things. And so, uh, yeah, what does it mean to to worship one God yeah, in the yeah, midst of yeah. all of that. Right. I, I think that's, I think we, we automatically think of ourselves as monotheists, but for goodness sakes, we, we all have got lots of split loyalties all the time. And so for that reason, you know, monogamy, monogamy is analogously as hard as monotheism. In a community of Christ theology of marriage, I want to say that, that marriage is a place to, to practice Christ-like community. It's a stable, it needs to become a stable place to, to practice discipleship, spiritual growth, growth, forgiveness, equality, mutuality, gender justice. And so a community of Christ theology of marriage would say marriage is not a hierarchy. One, one, I would be very, very uh, nervous if in a community of Christ marriage service, I heard the officiant talk about the husband being the head using those passages from Colossians or Ephesians out of, out of which context. Are, which are drawing on the culture, not yeah. not the, the testimony of Christ, not the living of Christ's equality. And and you know, we might also say that that marriage marriage can be a reflection of the very nature of God, which is a triune community of the one God, who is one eternal essence in 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 three co-equal, co-eternal uh, modes of being, right? Father, Son, Spirit, Source, Word, Breath. I mean, there are all kinds of analogies we could use, but in other words, that that as as God's very nature is communal, so marriage is one one place in which the communal nature of God gets to be reflected, all, always imperfectly, but where we get to re, you know, work at reflecting what we know God to be like. So those are some, anything you want to add? I mean, those are some pieces to a, 
that could be part of a community of Christ theology of marriage. So, so, so that brings us up to this moment, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just fascinating. And I, I have all kinds of uh, things in my mind, sparks going off and, and making connections. Uh, and, and I do wonder as community of Christ was coming into this uh, realization of Joseph Smith Jr.'s uh, life and choices. Uh, you know, it's about that same time that we're embracing the greater Christian tradition and really going deeper in the inheritance of that tra that tradition, which kind of helps sustain us talking about who we are and not who we aren't. Uh, so it's been really, really rich. I think one question I have for, for you for today is what do you see as the most common challenges uh, when it comes to marriage in our context today? Anything that kind of jumps out to you? I think you've touched on it a little bit when you were talking about theology of marriage and the, the struggle of monotheism and monogamy, how they parallel one another. I think the individualistic tendencies of our culture where wanting what we want, uh, I would say a culture of want, not as that we don't have enough, but that we want everything. And I think that that makes the hard work of a committed relationship even harder because of that whole idea that it shouldn't be this hard. I'm not getting my wants addressed right now. And so the, the seeking for those things that will give me that, that sense of ease or or pleasure or whatever. I think that's actually, uh, that, that that's normative. That's, that's become normative that, you know, if I'm hungry, I can just go out and eat at a restaurant. I don't have to worry about growing things and cooking things and doing the dishes afterwards, but it's just <laughs> all there and accessible. And I can follow my wants everywhere I want to. And I think that that follows over into relationships and the hard work that relationships can take. Mm -hmm. And then the not, not, realizing it's worth it, you know, because our immediate desires or needs aren't being met. Mm -hmm. We can't ne necessarily see the long-term value of the, of long-term commitments. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of that following our uh, momentary wants uh, is one of the things that on a social level mm -hmm. makes that difficult. I, I agree with that. I think connected to that would be the, the increasing economic disparity, for example, in American culture makes permanent faithful relationships harder, right? So I'm bridging over into economics for a moment here, but, but you know what? Uh, let me say, uh, this can be, this can be documented, proven and shown on graphs that for 30, 40 years, the wealth in American culture has been being sucked up. And so into a, into the hands of fewer and fewer people, and so since we're embodied beings and uh, paying bills and uh, mowing the lawn and taking care of kids and all these kinds of things that are embodied activities that require uh, sustenance, it, they become harder and harder. Um, so um, it's, it's much harder to sustain, I think, long-term loving faithful relationships in a culture where there is immense and, and increasingly growing economic disparity. There's a connection between the two. Mm -hmm. So um, we also, we treat, we treat 
uh, vows and bonds differently than, than our ancestors might have. I would never be one to say that one must maintain a vow and a bond in the, in the presence of an abusive relationship. So I wouldn't want to be misunderstood there. But, but generally in our culture, um, we, we see those things as much more fragile and breakable than our ancestors did, I, I think, too. So, Which has its good and its bad sides. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. hopefully less shame. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when, when, when there's need to dissolve a relationship. And also maybe there's and a more opportunity. I'm sorry, to, sorry, more yeah. opportunity to do that in ways that are equitable. So, yeah, there's there's different sides to that. Um, also, a sense of the the greater good is what 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 is the greater good of of marriage, right? And so, if you have a vision of life together as a place in which struggle with the struggle with spirituality, with relationships, with sexuality, we're going to keep struggling with that because there's a there is a, an intrinsic good to that 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 yields something bigger that maybe we can't see. That helps, but if you don't have that sense that there is a larger good to which your your relationship struggles somehow contribute, it's 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 it makes it difficult, right? I think so. Conveying that sense of this this larger end to, towards which now uh, our ancestors might have said, well, child rearing, of course, well, <laughs> maybe, but not everybody chooses to have children, so or can or can, right? So living living life together for the sake of the larger community uh, can be one of those mechanisms. But yeah, I think you have to have a, a larger vision too mm. uh, for what your life together is about. So that's another part of it. And well, can- and in a place like the U.S., the lifespan is much long, longer, longevity. So that struggle goes on a bit longer than maybe <laughs> it had, had to in the past. But- yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Man, Charmaine is... Charmaine is, is in a bad situation. She's stuck with a guy whose family has a lot of like people living to their late 80s and early 90s. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Any other challenges you wanted to share today? Um, I can't think of any. I can't think of anything else to share at the moment. Well, think of things as soon as, as we <laughs> finish recording. <laughs> Well, for those who are really captured by this topic and want to take this study deeper, what resources would you recommend for our listeners? Well, for those who are interested in kind of the historical development of marriage going from Greco-Roman culture and then being more becoming more Christianized along the way, I'd encourage you to take a look at uh, the Cambridge History of Christianity. And it comes in. Oh gosh, it's like I don't know, six volumes. Six volumes. It's a lot of volumes. You you probably would find it in a a library that has a good theological section. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has in <clears throat> several of the volumes a chapter on marriage, family, sex in each of these time periods. So it's broken up by you know every few hundred years. What's the development of Christianity in this regard? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a fun place, and from what the ones that we've read so far, they're very accessible and interesting. They're well written, and it just gives you this kind of bigger view of so what is the relationship yeah. between the culture and and Christian marriage? And it keeps reminding us that even today, it's the state that determines what marriage is <laughs> right. and mm-hmm. who can perform it. You know, in the U.S. It happens to be that the the uh, government allows ministers to solemnize these legal 
contracts, but mm-hmm. marriage itself is not Christian. It's not, it's, it's not, it didn't grow out of Christianity. And it's, and, and, the, and it's related to Christianity again, in different ways in different countries. So I think just getting a sense of how that's developed over time is really beneficial. Yeah. So that's a really good resource. Cambridge and, history of Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I, how many of our volumes, but yeah, go to the remember. first two or three volumes at least yeah. to get a sense of that early development and connection of these two bodies, these two identities. And and footnote alert, we we found we found especially volume <clears throat> two of that quite helpful for helping us pull a lot of thoughts together for today. And we we, we worked with a number of resources, but that was a particularly helpful one. Which is from like the time of Constantine to, to six hundred. Yeah. So that three hundred to six hundred. So so uh, the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church has a, an entry on matrimony, and it's it's good. It's probably not the best one I've ever read, but it, it the, the 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 bibliography at the end can point you in directions about other texts on the history of marriage and Christian tradition. In terms of community of Christ, we have a few resources, and I'll mention the the uh, the commentary that's called "Exploring Community of Christ: Basic Beliefs: A Commentary." There's a recent chapter that's been added to that on the sacraments. And in that chapter on the sacraments, not only does it lay out fairly systematically our sacramental theology, but also has a section on marriage. So that'd be, you know, a community of Christ resource that you can actually find on the website. Um, and I think you had one you, you thought of too, that or that you've used before. Is that right, Robin? Yes, this one was published around uh, 2012, but I think it was developed during our journey to national conferences across the church. It's very accessible, a brief um, overview of some of what you talked about today, and then has a few lessons where you can kind of dive into some of that content. The title of that is What Does the Bible Really Say About Marriage? And we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, that PDF resource. Also, there's a book on the sacraments. I'm not sure if it's it's available in other than electronic form, but it was uh, originally by Peter Judd and then Jane Gardner. And I think maybe then Andrew Bolt is a subsequent uh, add-ins to that too. But it, I think you can find that on the church website. I think it's simply called the sacraments of the church, but it's there on the church website. If you, if you go to, to beliefs and click on the basic beliefs and it's, it's down towards the bottom there, I think. So that's another place to go. Okay. So. We'll be sure to get a link for that too in our show notes. Well, thank you so much, Tony and Charmaine for being with us today. It has been a joy to take this trip down a history lane and theology and the unfolding of all of the different lenses. I especially appreciated how in the New Testament we are putting on the Jesus lens and reinterpreting and reframing and trying to understand as the continuing presence of the Holy Spirit journeys with us on that lifelong journey of faith seeking understanding. So thank you so much. And as always, a very special thanks to all of you, our listeners. If you are new to our podcast and want to learn more about theology, check out the whole lineup for this series called Percolating on Faith, including the Godshot mini-series. To learn more about how Community of Christ reads and understands scripture, check out Hebrew, New Brew, and she brew. You can find all of that on our website. Just check out the link in our show notes. This is your host, Robin Linkhart. 
and you are listening to Project Zion Podcast. Go out and make the world a better place. Take good care. Bye-bye.